Well, good morning. It's good to be back at Bernie. Gabby and I sure appreciated being with the folks at His Hill, some of whom I, many of whom actually I see in the audience this morning. And I want to thank you for your kindness to us. We have sure appreciated it and been blessed just by the fellowship in sharing Christ. Yeah, as Charlie said, we've probably known each other for over 35 years now. And we served together in a, on a board for the leadership of Torch Bears. And um, I have come to appreciate Charlie uh, deeply in that group of men because they'll call a spade a spade with me. And they'll do it in love and kindness. And I deeply appreciate that. Um, we appreciate Charlie and, and Patsy as a couple as well. And honestly, the nature of our ministry often takes us different places. So we aren't able to cultivate fellow, uh, friendships that deeply quickly. And so every time we get together, it's kind of this cumulative effect of friendship. And I deeply appreciate that. Last time I was here, we were also here on the, on the wake or on the, uh, the end of the Thanksgiving conference at, at uh, his hill. And I, this is the fourth time I'd preached at Bernie. And um, first time I, I preached on John 15 and then the last two times, first on John 6 and then John 11. And I decided simply if, if the Lord tarries and we have an opportunity to share that I would begin a series for this church on, on the signs of the Gospel of John. I, I, it was easiest for me to kind of choose a road plan. Now there are, in, I'll explain this in just a second, I count eight signs in the Gospel of John. We're gonna consider the third one, so there are five more years. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's good we have a plan uh, because if the rapture takes place and I'm not here, Charlie can just continue and uh, <laughs> just uh, continue on with the series. I got a mixed review from the crowd this morning. <laughs> we like to tease each other in torch bears, and it's our way of showing others that we like them. <laughs> and Charlie will know this well enough. Major Thomas was relentless in his teasing. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn, first of all, to John chapter 20. And we're going to look at, at the third of the eight signs in the Gospel of John from John chapter 5. But to set this up, I would just want to go back to John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31 to review why we have the signs in the Gospel of John and why they are called signs before we go to John chapter 5. This, in my mind, makes a wonderful series on the Christian life, actually. We read in John chapter 20 in verses 30 and 31, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's a wonderful summary statement by the author of the Gospel of John on why he wrote the Gospel in the first place and why we have these events called the signs. He is teaching us 
how to walk in the reality of what is called life in his name. We need to remember that the gospel that Jesus Christ preached is a gospel of life, not help. It's not a gospel of lifestyle, it's a gospel of life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is not a place I enter after I die. Eternal life is a person who enters me before I die. And for that reason, eternal life begins at faith, not death. The offer of the gospel is not necessarily going to heaven. The offer of the gospel is to receive a person, Christ, that we might have eternal life. And eternal life is not just a quantity of time, it's a quality of life. Time is measured by change. That's why the clock on my cell phone is changing in numbers. Time is marked by change. Eternity is changelessness. That means the life who came to dwell within me, Christ himself, never changes. That gives me tremendous assurance to trust him over and over and over again. He cannot change. It's not that Christ will not change, he cannot change. His character is immutable. He will always be the same. And hence, we can always cast ourselves upon him with our trust. The Lord spoke to Peter in Acts chapter 5 and verse 20. He said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole message of this life, life. Acts chapter 5 and verse 20. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our our Lord. The wages of sin. I don't know if you've thought about this in these terms, but you pay a, a wage to somebody who works, and that is exactly what sin is. It's work. There is nothing of the power of the Spirit available to my sin. I do it all in my own energy. And that's why sin is a path of of exhaustion. It is a path of self-destruction, ultimately. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son does not have the life. 1 John chapter 5 in verse 12. So when I receive Christ, I receive his life. And the one who died for me is the one who comes to live in me at new birth by the presence of his spirit. To be a Christian is to be one in whom Christ lives. And too often I'm trying to live a life that I have actually received, Christ's life. And we are designed to trust implicitly that indwelling life of Christ who came to live within us the day I was born again and became a child of God, Christ's life. Now in John's gospel, it says that these signs 
Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples and have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. The, the miracles of Jesus or the works of Jesus in John's gospel are not called miracles. They're referred to as signs. And John obviously uh, just communicated to us under the authority of the Spirit a selection of them. He says at the end of John 21 that there were so many that the, the, whole, the libraries of the world would not contain all the material. So this is just a select portion of them. And he says specifically many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples. I would make the argument that John's gospel was really written to the church. John wrote his gospel at the end of the first century. The synoptics, the other three, were already written. Church history says that the elders of the church in Ephesus came to John, who was the only apostle to die a natural death, and he was the oldest of them at the end of his, his life. And they, they took the synoptics to him, and he said, are these true? And he said, yes, they are, but there are a few things missing. And so let me complement those synoptic gospels with my own. That is why 90% of what you see in the gospel of John, you don't find in the other synoptics because it was already there. His is a complementary one, and he was writing at the end of the first century. The church had become more cosmopolitan in nature, but also it was having a tough day because it was not easy being a Christian at that time in the Roman Empire. And so he encourages us to trust Christ through these signs. They are, if you will, object lessons for anybody who would trust Christ as their Lord, their Savior, and their life as to how to appropriate the indwelling life of Christ, the one who died for us and came to live within us. How to appropriate what is called life in his name. My last name is Reed because my father's last name was Reed and my grandfather's last name, etc. I didn't just, you know, receive his name at birth. There are certain things that I do that have indicated to some people, as we say in German, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that I'm my father's son. In fact, my niece was at Bible school and she looked at me one day and she said, you even walk like granddad. I didn't learn how to do that. In fact, it's most unconscious when I do it. An old family friend of mine came to me one day and he said, you have a lot of your father in you. I didn't really know what he meant. The older I get, though, the more I'm recognizing what they probably mean. Those are inherited characteristics because they were inherent in the life from which I was born. I don't imitate my father in trying to be like him. It's inherent in the life from which I was born. To try and imitate Christ's character would be about as futile as me trying to imitate Charlie McCall's personality. You'd know immediately. I was faking it. 
That's about how effective it is to try and imitate Christ's character. I can't. His character is inherent in the life which came to dwell within me. I've said already this week at Bodenseeof, we live on a piece of property that used to be all fruit trees, now just a portion of it. So we've got apple, pear, plum, and cherry trees on the property. I do not go out into the apple orchard or the fruit orchard in February, stand in front of an apple tree, scratch my head, and ask my wife, what do you think? Are we going to get plums out of this tree next year or apples? Life reproduces according to its own nature. And Christ will only reproduce according to his own nature and equal to his own character. In fact, it's not that he he won't do otherwise. He can't do otherwise. That's why it says in James chapter 1, God cannot be tempted. It's not inherent in, in his nature to do anything less than what is equal to his character. And that life has come to dwell within me. And scripture calls that in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's who Jesus is all the time. And he cannot change, and he cannot change in me. By the way, he cannot compromise with anything in my life and yours that is not equal to his character. We talk about the faithfulness of God, but do we want the faithfulness of God to convict me of that which is not equal to his character in me? Because that's what he's going to begin to do. And that's why the, the, the discipleship process is sometimes messy because it's unlearning and learning at the same time. In the presence of his disciples. So if we're a disciple this morning, if we've received Christ and been born again by his spirit, these signs are an aid to teach us how to appropriate Christ as our life. Essentially, the message behind the signs is keep on trusting. Don't stop trusting. Both to become a Christian and then to be the Christian you become. And the signs teach us wonderful tools. They're all done in the theater of human weakness. Weakness has never been a problem with Jesus. He never stood in front of a person in the gospel accounts and, and say to them, sorry, you're too weak. I can't, I can't do anything with you. It's not our strength that's tested, it's our faith that's tested. And, and in reality, the, the Christian life is, is a growth in disposition that goes backwards towards the crib to the point where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, for unless you are converted and then become like children, you cannot be my disciple. So we are increasingly learning dependence upon him. Discipleship is the learning process of learning how to remain dependent upon Jesus no matter what's happen what happens. That is my first responsibility, remain dependent upon Jesus. So let's go to John chapter 5. All that was just introduction. And we'll go to the third, don't worry. 
Uh, let's go to the third sign. I'm not going to take these signs in the order of appearance. I'm just, honestly, I wait on the Lord. Okay, what would be your word to us today? I don't hear a physical voice. I don't have a vision. It, it doesn't appear in an email or anything. It's just a conviction that I had in my heart. This is for us this morning. John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 2 to verse 17 this morning. Let me start reading in verses 2 to 9. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped down or stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me, and Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. We'll get to that in a few minutes. From the time of Ezra to the time of Jesus, what had happened among a certain portion of the Jewish population who had part of the leadership in the day, and for some it was a sincere desire to be pleasing to God, what the Jews did is they divided life, just daily life, into 39 different categories. The category of cooking, the category of travel, the category of farming. And under those 39 categories, they had 39 different laws as to how you could break the Sabbath. That all added up to 1,521 ways to break the Sabbath. Ouch. So this was a burden that had become unbearable. It may have started out as a sincere desire to please God, but we need to know that there is something in the human heart that is inherent to my nature, and that is, I want to do it. Because if I can do it, I get the credit, and I have evidently control of that part of my life. That is inherent in the human heart. It is, it is a residue right out of Eden after man fell. He just did something. He took the fruit. And since that day, there is something in, in the heart of man that always wants to do, 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 do. That is inherent to our nature. I want to do it. And there's something in the heart of man that wants to do something on his own to either reach or please God. 
And there's also something in the heart of man that resists having somebody else do it for me. So I'm sitting in the dining hall at Bodensdorf and the kitchen brings out a second dessert. They put it on the counter and a student at my table says, Peter, let me go get you another dessert. Do you know what my knee-jerk reaction is? Don't worry about it. I can take care of it myself. Don't worry about it. I can take care of itself or myself. God, don't worry about it. I can take care of this myself. That is inherent in the Christian life. We'd rather do it on our own. But to receive something for nothing, that is a blow to our ego. We just can't handle that. I was speaking about this in, in Greece at our center there in September, and a guy came up to me afterwards and he said, yeah, but Peter, we're supposed to be trying harder. I'm saying, go ahead and try harder. Jesus came to do it for me. And the essence of faith is allowing somebody else to do it for you. That's why faith is offensive. And personally, I'm sure that's why Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. Because the Pharisees had turned what was supposed to be faith in God into a work for God. We'll come to that at the end. Jesus came through the sheep gate, not by accident, because he was going to be the Lamb of God, which took away the sin of the world. He was the fulfillment of those lambs that had been slaughtered over and over and over again for hundreds of years that were intended to be an illustration of what Christ was going to do. So God said it shouldn't be without blemish. It should be one-year-old male. And you sacrifice that for your sins. And that was intended to leave the Jewish population asking, what does this mean? And one day John came, John the Baptist, and looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And they would have an illustration of what that would meant. God is very wise and thorough in his education. Now the thing about the people who were gathered here at the pool of Bethesda is this. God made a statement in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 15. He said to the nation, not an individual, and he said it at that time, if you will obey me, I will not put any of these diseases on you that I put on Egypt. And so what happened was every Jew then began to think, well, if I'm sick, I must have sinned. In fact, that's what everybody else thought of you. So if you're ill in any way, people immediately thought you must have committed some horrible sin. And that's why you're in the condition that you are. Jesus came through that gate and walked among those people because they needed to know God is for you, not against you. Yes, you may have lived in a way that is 
inherently against him, but God took the first step towards us to make things right. Praise God. In my Bible, I read from the New American Standard Version at the end of verse three, beginning with this word, there's a bracket. It says, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, bracket, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever has then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted, end bracket, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And the reason why that is in bracket or it could be in a footnote in your Bible, is because the translators of scriptures looked at that and they said, that just sounds a little bit questionable. And that's why it's worded in that way. Some older original copies have that verse, some don't, because it was disputed. Now I look at that verse in the 21st century and say, you mean people really believe that? Well, you and I live in the West with access, good access, to medical help. And I fail sometimes to appreciate other parts of the world where they don't have that. And I've walked through the streets of Delhi and, and observed beggars on the street who are absolutely desperate. And when you're in that much pain for that long, you'll try anything, even if it's a rumor, for relief. So I think that we need to have a little bit of compassion with that. And Jesus came. The guy didn't ask Jesus to heal him. Jesus said and took the initiative, do you wish to get well? I'm saying to myself, what an offensive question. Jesus knew he'd been in that condition 38 years. I have a friend named Keith Yates. His nickname is Bear. I met him in college. He was born a twin to his teenage mother. He and his twin brother were put in incubators because they were born too soon. And for whatever reason, a nurse left him in the incubator longer than his brother, and he went blind. And so he's been blind for a long time. I would be embarrassed to ask him, Bear, would you like to get your sight back? That's essentially what Jesus was doing. Well, there are 35 times in the gospel accounts, I recently heard that Jesus asked about 250 questions total in the gospels, but 35 of those questions were directed at an individual in a specific instance, like John chapter five, do you wish to get well? John chapter six, Philip, where are we gonna buy bread? And all I know is when Jesus asked that kind of question, he was not asking for information he didn't have. He wasn't asking for information. He was asking really for a confession. And the answers to the questions of Jesus, not the rhetorical ones, but the answers to the questions of Jesus re reveal a heart condition that he was going to get at. So what did Philip do? 
John chapter six, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't enough to get everyone just a bite. What did Philip's answer indicate? Well, any atheist could have answered in the same way. Philip, he reckoned with that which was physically, visibly, humanly possible, but no more. And that's what Jesus was getting at. What was Jesus getting at in the answer of this man to his question? The man said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool whenever the water is stirred up because while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And in that answer, we see a certain amount of accusation, blame, criticism, and despair. This man had become cynical. All these people are here. I've been in this condition for 38 years and no one will help me. No one is able to help me, Jesus. Jesus, I look at my past and nothing's changed. So I have nothing to expect in the future. And there are some Christians who find themselves in that same condition. Peter, the Christian life has never worked. I've tried all kinds of things. Furthermore, you ought to get a whiff of my church. They can't help me. The camp can't help me. A counselor can't help me. The Christian life doesn't work, and everything I see in my past is defeat. That's what this sign teaches us, something for that person. So if somebody's seated here, and they look back at their past, and all they can see is failure, this has never worked. Sometimes that person can be hard to deal with. But I want to say this before we go on. Never back down on the sufficiency of Christ. Even if it offends them. Even if they use the typical evangelical answer, yes, but. I'm the exception. Never back down on the sufficiency of Christ. The one who died for you is the one who lives in you. And the life which lives within me is able to overcome the power of death. You can't be any weaker than dead. So can he overcome my anger? Yes, he can. Can he overcome my panic attack? Yes, he can. Can he overcome the addictive behavior pattern that I've been involved in for years and have never been able to break? Yes, he can. Peter, how can you say that so categorically? If he can overcome the power of death... He can overcome that in me and you. And then comes the answer, yeah, but look, it's never worked. That's not the issue. When you and I look to our future, don't look at our past. We'll only get discouraged. Look at Christ's past. Has he ever said something that he couldn't do? Has he ever made a promise that he couldn't fulfill? This is why we need to be as stubborn as a donkey on the sufficiency of Christ. We don't come to people, oh, you're right, sorry, I, I, didn't, know you were in, I, I didn't know you were seeking a counselor. I just, maybe my, my views are, are too extreme. This man's faith was bankrupt. And it's important to note that he didn't ask Christ to heal him. Christ came, expressed his will to this man, 
And whatever Christ wills, he works. That's the principle. And anything he works or wills for me as a Christian, he's going to work it. So if God's predestined plan for me is to become changed into the image of Christ, that his character would be reproduced in me, if he wills that, he's going to do it. Anything that Christ wills for you and me as a disciple of Jesus, he's going to work it. So Peter, how does this translate into experience? What is my responsibility? Well, what happened to this man physically is an illustration of what can happen to us morally and spiritually. Because if you think about it, the, the, the physical was actually the easiest realm for Christ to work in. But it is an illustration of what he is able to do in the spiritual moral realm in all the other areas of my life. So his first word is this one, arise, get up. Get up. Yeah, but, 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 but Jesus, you're telling me to do the very thing I've never been able to do. Jesus, the only thing I've known in the Christian life, I've not been able to overcome this. My wife, my family, uh, my circle of friends, they've been suffering under this for years. I've never been able to do that. Jesus says, get up. The essence of the Christian life is that God commands me to do the very thing that I can't in and of myself. That's the Christian life. Yeah, but Jesus, look at all these selfish people around. They haven't been able to help me, etc. I know. Because yours has been a misplaced faith. Disappointment is often a symptom of a misplaced faith. He had been putting his faith in man. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but one of the most common substitutes for Christ are other Christians. And that'll disappoint us ultimately. Romans chapter 9 verse 33 says, but those who place their faith in him will not be disappointed. Romans 9, 33. I like that translation in the New American Standard. Some say will not be put to shame. So we don't need to be as Impressed with our weakness, impressed with our past, impressed with our defeat, as we are his ability to overcome it. Never be so impressed with your weakness that you don't trust in his faith, in his strength, by his indwelling. It's interesting, Jesus gives him a command. He didn't engage him in a discussion. You notice this about Jesus' method with people? He, he cut Nicodemus in chapter 3. He cut him right off right at the pass. He, did, he was not going to engage himself in these wranglings about words and theological definitions. He just said twice, unless you are born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. He looked at this man. He didn't, he didn't want this man's opinion. He wasn't going to engage in a discussion. 
This is what I will, and what I will, I work. So get up. Do you know, sometimes we are wasting God's time. Because sometimes there's a point of obedience, and when it comes to Christ's indwelling life, this is a point of obedience. Faith is an expression of obedience. Disobedience, I don't know if we've thought about this, disobedience is treating God as a liar. And that, friends, is blasphemy. And God is always asking people to engage with the sufficiency of Christ through a step of obedience. So in Exodus chapter 17, God said to Moses, hit the rock. John, uh, Joshua 6, he said to his people, shout at the walls of Jericho. 1 Kings 17, he said to Elijah, go to the river. Matthew chapter 14, he said to Peter, come on the water. Uh, John chapter 5, he says, stand up. So faith is always characterized by activity. Faith is an act of obedience. And when it comes to Christ as our life, we must come to the place of obedience on this. It's not a, it's not a matter of you know, discussing, the, discussing this until it's all intellectually refined and you can understand it. We obey that we might understand afterwards. And this man, I suppose, could have said, yeah, but what if this doesn't work? What if this Christ in you doesn't work? That is not the question. The question is, will Jesus fail? He won't fail because he can't fail. Because his life is eternal. It is changeless. It is victorious life. Secondly, take, pick up your pallet. In other words, you're not returning here. You see, this guy's pallet was his method just to cope with his defeated condition. Some Christians settle for the peace of defeat. And they get their mat and they just perpetuate their own defeat and they just cope and say inside, well, nothing's ever going to change. Never has, never will. Jesus comes and says, get up, take up your pallet because you're not going to need this coping mechanism anymore. You're not going to need this. And in order to show you that and others, I'm going to ask you to carry it. Just so everybody knows, I don't need that anymore. And so there can be many pallets, if you will, in our lives, just a way of coping. Just a way of coping, if not hiding our defeat. Lastly, he says, walk. Whatever God starts, he always finishes. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Whatever God starts, he finishes. Now here's the thing about this man. 
That first step, yes, when he appropriated on the basis of his obedience the sufficiency of Christ, that first step would have been pretty dramatic because he did something for the first time in 38 years. But I would suggest to us this morning that every step after that wasn't as dramatic. So he went back and every step he took in daily life might not have looked dramatic, but it was just as much a miracle. We speak of the miraculous in terms of the dramatic. I need the miracle that is undramatic. Patience for those around me. Love for my wife. Friendliness for a stranger. Self-control for my private life. Those are the miracles that I need. They might not be very dramatic, but they're a miracle because that's what Christ does. God said about himself in Isaiah 43 and verse 13, I act and who can reverse it? I act and who can reverse it? Reading on and to close this morning in John chapter 5, starting in the second part of verse 9, it says, Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. I've got to stop that at that point because otherwise I'm going to begin hemorrhaging. <laughs> These people, on the basis of their religion, said to this man who had just been cured by Christ, you can't do that. Okay, what is the man supposed to do? God never reverses what he, what he does. So what is he supposed to do? Oh, you guys are right. According to your, relig- your religion, I should just lay down on my mat again and deny it. That's what a religion will do. Because religion... Is man's best effort to get to God. I'll do it on my own. And it is antagonistic to a work of Christ. (coughs) Verse 11, but he answered them, he who made me well is the one who said to me, pick up my pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So they asked the man to deny what Christ was doing. You can't do that. Humanism says, I can. Religion says, I must. Christianity says, I can't. Only Christ can in me. That's a Christian. 
If anyone experienced Sabbath that, that day, it was the man who was healed. That's the intent of the Sabbath. God's sufficiency for you and for me. And this began, of course, on the seventh day of creation, when God rested from his works, not because he was tired, but because everything was done. And the seventh day was man's first day on earth, and it's the only day in the creation account that doesn't have this phrase, and there was evening and morning one day. Why? Because Sabbath day was supposed to be the condition of every day. And on the first day, the Heavenly Father was completed with all the work and the spotlight of his attention was placed upon man and man contributed nothing to the created order. He was the receiver. God was the giver. Man was the receiver, and that's the nature of our relationship with man, or with God, excuse me. He's the giver, I'm the receiver. And what had happened to the Jews is that they had turned faith into a work in an inappropriate way, and their application of God's word became an addition to God's word, and that's where we need to be careful. Because it played on that bent of the human heart, we've got to do this to please God. Well, Jesus found that man in the temple, and that tells us something. Not only this man's legs were healed, but his heart was too. Because a cripple would not have been allowed in the temple because the Jews automatically believed you're a sinner, that's why you're sick, and we won't allow you to defile our temple. Well, his legs weren't, weren't just healed, his heart was. And he had reason to worship God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to walk in to Bernie Bible Church on Sunday and sing a song from your heart and not just from your mouth because of what Jesus was doing during the week. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you live in me. For my family, for my spouse, for my employer or my employee, for my neighbor, Thank you for what you're doing in me. It's been a great week. And you come into church and you sing from your heart and not just from your mouth. This man went in and praised God and he had reason to do so because of what Christ had done. I suppose you could say this man's life became difficult the minute he allowed Christ to prove his sufficiency in him because there were going to be a lot of people who were going to be against him from that day forward. You can't do that. You can't live that way. Don't talk to me about the sufficiency of Christ. I'd rather do it on my own. And that's what Paul spoke about when he talked about the spirit and the flesh being against one another. They're antagonistic. Let's pray this morning.
Father, I want to thank you that you never expected me to produce godliness out of my own nature. And I want to thank you that the same way I received Christ is the same way that I walk in Christ. And Lord Jesus, where this word is appropriate for somebody's circumstances this morning, I'd pray that you would speak it to their conscience and that they would know today it's time to get up. It's time to appropriate the life of Christ within me by an act of obedience in spite of my past and in spite of everybody else's opinion. So Lord, may your word bear fruit in the days to come for your own name's sake. Amen.